Hey, Eric, how you doing? Good, good, good. How are you? How are you? Well, just uh, recovering from a tough loss last night. Fortunately, ended our our NBA Finals hopes, but you know what? Now time to go into next year. Cool, cool. So, is everything okay? Yeah, everything's good. Just you know, just just dealing with the loss and and now trying to uh, figure out what the plan is moving forward. I'll be heading to uh, the NBA Combine on Sunday and uh, then assisting with pre-draft workouts and, and things. So everything is starting to line up for next year, but just wish we could still be fighting for that Larry O'Brien. Cool, cool, cool. So first of all, like, can you introduce yourself for the coaches yeah. in Taiwan? Yeah, no problem. So my name is Alex Cost. I'm the strength and conditioning coach with the Philadelphia 76ers, and I'm the head strength and conditioning coach for their G League affiliate, the Delaware Bluecoats. This is my first year with, uh, in the NBA and with this organization. The previous three, three to four years, I was with San Diego State University, a Division I program. I was with their men's basketball team. I also did a little private training, and I was also the head of strength and conditioning for San Diego Miramar College. Um, their men's basketball team. And I'm, I'm still an adjunct professor there as well. Cool. That was cool. So since this is your first year in the NBA, how was the experience? The experience was great. It's definitely different from the collegiate setting in that there is always something going on. So in the collegiate setting, it's a lot more structured of when practices, when the lifts are, the student athletes have classes, they have study halls, they have other obligations to go to. And on top of that, now they have, you know, NIL obligations and things that they have to pursue in terms of advertising and marketing. But with the NBA, there's a lot more ambiguity to it. And so schedules can change and shift on a daily basis. And so you kind of have to be able to go with the flow based on a uh, what is happening with that in terms of travel or like games getting rescheduled due to COVID or canceled or all that. But in terms of having access to the athletes, you get a lot more in the NBA because they're here to play basketball and they've already finished their schooling or they're not necessarily in school. Some of them are finishing their degrees, um, which is great, but you do have a bigger chance to affect on that because of this constant access and in terms of working with them, most of them are pretty proficient in terms of training because they've gone through a college program. And so you can utilize, I would say more complex movements, but also just more complex ideas in terms of strength and conditioning. So not necessarily just movements, but how you would attack, you know, like mobility or different types of periodization or programming with them as opposed to college athletes. Cool, cool. So next question, I kind of like ask all the like coaches who works with basketball is like, how was the in-season training going to look like? So in terms of like basketball training, like skills training versus like weight room training? Yeah. So we have, we had four coaches on our G League staff and the Sixers have much more but they have specific player development coaches that work with players you know on shooting technique driving d 
defense, all that kind of stuff, stuff that isn't as related to like defensive or offensive concepts. That's more run by the head coach in terms of plays that need to be run, schemes, how things flow and all that. And so what we did at the G League level, which worked out pretty well, was when we wanted to do specific skill work and have a lift on the same day, we would just call it lab lift. And we would allocate about 20 minutes to each and split the team up into two groups. And half or one of the groups, which is half the team, would go with the skill coaches. And some of them, you know, the big guys would work with the big coaches. The guards would work with the guard coaches. And then half the team would be with me in the weight room. And then we would flip-flop. And so that, that was a good way for us to kind of get their bodies ready for practice, but also to be able to work on specific skill development for their position. And then I was able to individualize their programming a little bit more because I was dealing with half the team as opposed to the full team. Cool. So uh, at the NBA, do you do like game day lift, pre-game lift or like post-game lift? Uh, Braxton just like that so Braxton knows that uh, we did have Q4 days which is popular Daniel Bove um, in his quadrant system book and so we would lift on post game during the season when we would have around two three four games a week to try to get these guys to lift at least uh, there you go Nick that's our AT um, to try to get these guys to consolidate their stress physiologically so during uh, the preseason before we went to showcase, we would have about two games a week, but they'd be pretty spread out. And so we were able to lift not on game days and still be able to consolidate stress and undulate the stress that we place on their bodies. But then once we got into season with travel and games happening a lot more frequently during the week, I would post game lift the entire team usually. Um, and that would be dependent on whether obviously we were home or away and then based on how many minutes certain guys played, that would be pretty much how much volume they would do post-game. So, like, uh, next would be, like, so how was the po – like, what kind of thing you are going to do on the post-game lift? So, for post-game, I would just – keep it really simple. I would usually have about four to five exercises and almost treat it as a circuit. So guys who played, you know, 35 plus minutes would go through a couple times. Guys who played 20 to 30 minutes would go through three times. And then guys who played less than that would go through four to five times. And the guys who didn't come off the bench or played less than 10, 20 minutes, they would have some sort of conditioning aspect, whether that is on the treadmill or, repeat power exercises, but I would usually keep it pretty simple and just have, you know, a vertical press, a horizontal pull, a knee dominant and a hip dominant exercise, and then maybe one power exercise. So I try to make that as simple as possible. I wouldn't do any sort of like Olympic lifting or jumping unless the player did not play uh, to try to get them to that quadrant four level that the other players played on. So that way we can keep our entire team on the same physiological um, stressors. But again, probably be about four to five exercises. They usually stayed the same, but things like rear foot elevated split squat, um, dumbbell bench press, uh, pull-ups, RDLs, trap bar deadlifts, uh, push press. So things that are pretty simple um, 
in terms of like movement wise, but they're kind of like the meat and potatoes of lifting. And so what I would do is just try to pick about four or five of those exercises. And then again, based on minutes played, I would delineate how, how much volume each player would have. Cool. So, so much for the in-season or like basketball stuff. And next I want to talk more like about the post on your Instagram. Okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm more interested in those kind of stuff. So yeah, It's okay. I, I appreciate it. I, I try to make those so that they're educational and, and just paying it forward and just helping everybody understand what I'm learning and, and my specific viewpoints on, on those topics. Okay, cool. So first thing I want to talk about is like a change of direction versus like agility. What is the difference? I know you post like two posts, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so from what I've learned through the research and, uh, and just what I like to determine it as is change of direction is when you know that you will be changing direction. So a drill such as like a box drill or a 5-10-5 where it is set out for you that you're going to do certain movements in a certain way, you know, or like a T drill or um, like a 45 degree angle, which I call a W drill or an M drill. Um, so the players know exactly what they're supposed to do. That's what I call change of direction. It's a little bit more planned out and that is a regression to agility training which is what I would consider. So if you know players have to work on specific lateral changes of direction or front to back changes of direction, then I would start them with those types of drills where cones are laid out for them and they have to go around. Agility, there's a reactionary component to it. And so the players aren't aware of which direction they're going to go, but it's more based on either like a clap or some sort of audio cue or some sort of verbal cue or um, something along those lines to where they have to process information and then react to that. So something like just defensive slides, right? Like you could have them slide to the left, change your finger, slide to the right, slide back to the left, but they're going on your cue, reacting to it, not necessarily like a five or a box drill or something where you set up cones in the shape of a hexagon and you have a player in the middle of them and then you can point, you know, back, side, forward, and they have to react and touch the cone based on where you're pointing. And so the main difference between change of direction and agility to me and what I've read in the research is that it really is that reactionary component. So being able to process information in live time to get the job done or get to the destination of where they need to go. And so a good progression would be using change of direction drills so that you can work on the ins and outs of their cuts and more biomechanics. And then agility would then move that into having a reactionary component. Cool. And I also read from your Instagram that you divided like if athletes into like four categories, right? Yeah, so you can have athletes who are quick thinkers and slow movers, slow movers and slow thinkers, quick thinker or quick movers and slow thinkers and quick movers and quick thinkers. So based on that, you can decipher what they need to work on, whether it's change of direction or reaction and agility, right? So if they're a quick thinker, but they're a slow mover, maybe it's something like the biomechanics or 
getting in and out of a cut that they need to work on. So change of direction would actually benefit them more by regressing that. But let's say they're really good at change of direction, but they're not good at the reactionary component. So then this is where you would probably start to work on more agility type drills and reactionary drills in order to get them to start processing information in live time. And it doesn't always have to be something that is movement based, right? So like I've done things where an athlete faces a wall and I have two tennis balls behind them and I'm throwing the tennis balls off the wall. So they're just trying to grab the tennis ball based on seeing it. So that's still reacting in live time without them having moving their body. Um, so that's a way to kind of bridge the gap between processing information and reacting in terms of getting to a certain spot. Cool. I love, I mean, I love the thing you post on Instagram and explain it in like so detailed. I, I appreciate that. That, that means a lot. And, you know, that's why I do it. I, I really want to help educate everybody and, and just let them know what I'm learning. And if anybody ever has questions, I'm, I'm always open to answering them. I, I used to like, no, I, I mean, I already know that there's difference between like change of direction and agility, but I didn't like, like, uh, divided like athletes into like these kind of four categories and which I think that will really help me in the future. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's just a way to further individualize, right? It's not necessarily from a lifting standpoint, but change of direction and agility are huge aspects of sport. And so there's a way that you can get an on-field individualization component to it. Yeah. So next thing, we'll, it's a little bit like change of direction, but from your post, you, you post like force absorption and... Yeah. What is the other word? Absorption and propulsion, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's kind of like the, it's kind of different than the traditional training. So, can you explain a little bit about how you view these kind of movement and how you're going to train that? Yeah, uh, of course. So, I learned this through the APC program, but it's a principle that I abide by and it's gas versus brakes, right? Um, you need to be able to brake before you can speed up because what good is having a Ferrari engine if you have Volkswagen brakes on it? So usually a lot of injuries occur with the inability to decelerate or decelerate and change direction. So we need to make sure that we can absorb force before we make sure that we produce it. So instead of focusing like, let's say, I mean, let's take a box jump, right? So instead of worrying about how high we can jump onto a box in terms of basketball, because it's a very vertical sport, let's make sure that we can absorb that force and land from that box. So what good is having a 40-inch vertical if you don't know how to land from it? Because if you look at basketball, I know there's a lot of contact injuries in the air, but when most people get hurt is when they're landing from a jump, not when they're taking off from a jump. So it's the ability to absorb that force as opposed to produce it. And it's not necessarily just absorbing force. It's how you absorb it. Is it a short impulse? So do you get very, very little flexion or very little bend in the joints? Or do you absorb it over a longer period of time? And so I like to work the deceleration aspect. And what comes with that is a lot of eccentric training. So not necessarily tempos, but 
think about like landing from a box. You get a lot of eccentric work in the lower body. Or if you look at stopping in terms of a sprint, you get a lot of eccentric work from the lower body as well. And then when you're looking at concentric work, that's the ability to produce force or power. And so you can start to train that just by itself. And then you can start to work on rate of force development. So how fast can you produce that force? And so there's different ways to train it because there are different impulses and time restrictions. So in terms of eccentric training, I would train somebody to just have good mechanics landing from a box. And then I would say, okay, can you do it with less joint angles or bigger joint angles? Because the more you bend, the smaller the joint angle gets. So now let's try to have a smaller impulse where you land from that box, but get less knee flexion. And then let's see if you can jump up onto the box, but take as little amount of time from the ground to the box. So now we're not only working concentric muscle actions, but how fast can you produce that force? And what is your rate of force development? How about things like uh, the post, like uh, you combine some FRC work into your training. Like there's like different, not just sagittal, but there's like the knee angle and the angle was like a little bit like combined with sagittal and frontal plane of movement. What about those kind of stuff? Yeah, so the, the way that I really put FRC into my eccentric and concentric or absorption versus propulsion training is when you look at the lower body, when we're looking at force absorption or more eccentric training, you get a lot more dorsiflexion in the ankle. You get a little bit of internal rotation at the tibia and you get internal rotation in the hip. So from there, I can work something like ankle pails and rails and dorsiflexion dorsiflexion, sorry, passive range holds, passive range liftoffs to start training that anterior tib, but also to try to create space to absorb that force in that tailor joint and subtalar joint. And then you can try to get some sort of rotational capacity at the knee, because a lot of people think the knee only flexes and extends, but it does have the ability to rotate. Although it's not a lot, you don't want to get shearing forces, but it should be able to rotate a bit. And then you get people who get really deep, a lot of trunk flexion over that hip, especially that front hip. So that's going into some deep internal rotation at the hip. And so when you start trading these eccentric force absorption motions, you can train these internal rotation range of motion, but also capacity. And the thing I like about FRC is that it teaches the player to own that motion internally. So we're not externally loading them until they're ready for it. But can you actually absorb your own force, right? The force that you can produce by yourself, can you absorb it by yourself? And then on the flip side of that, when you're going to produce force, you get external rotation at the hip and the exact opposite, right? So external rotation at the knee and you get plantar flexion at the ankle. And so that is indicative of your ability to produce force, whether it's jumping up or sprinting forward or moving laterally. And so if I'm going into a certain training session, that I'm going to focus on one or the other, absorption versus propulsion, or maybe both, I'll take a lot of my players or my clients through some sort of FRC activation. And that takes a good amount of time. So I won't necessarily go through the pails and rails, passive range holds, hovers, liftoffs, and all that stuff. 
but I'll do something to get that activated. And if I see that they lack the capacity in that joint in order to get to those joint angles and to those internal and external rotations, then that's when I'll use most of like a recovery session to actually really dive into FRC and try to single out certain joints and to get them to be able to use that with their internal strength. So how about, how about those, uh, those with bands and fast movement, when they have the, the mobility, you're gonna pro progress into like faster movement, right? And with band assisted. Yeah. How do you program these kinds of movement or do you count that as a plyout or as a movement? And how do you combine it with your training? So, it's very contextual. It can be used for plyos, like something like a band-assisted jump or a band-resisted jump. But I will use bands in order to pull play into more of force absorption so that I'm augmenting greater force than what they can produce because that happens a lot in sport, whether you get pushed or whether you're sprinting and have to stop and you're not used to absorbing as much force than you can produce or you get a little extra push. So you actually have more force than you can produce. And then with force absor or with force propulsion, I'll usually have band resisted because that way the band cues you to produce force through that plane of movement or through that motion. And that's when we start to work on things like power production, rate of force development, early and late rate of force development. And I think bands are a great way to do that because not only can you augment external forces, but you can manipulate the bands on the body in such a way that they actually mimic sport specific movements. For sure. So, uh, for training athletes, do you like come, how do you like combine this into your training session? So if I'm again, like if I'm going to work on, let's say, uh, a forward lunge, so like a, a, a force absorption forward lunge. What I will do is I'll have a band either pulling that person into a forward lunge to get their body to start reacting to external forces so that they can absorb that force before I go into a weighted forward lunge. Or maybe I'll have that band pull their torso rotating over that front leg so that they're able to understand that there are internal rotation forces they come with this forward lunge and to start to open up that joint space and get those stabilizer muscles moving and those inner muscles and synergistic muscles that aren't the antagonist agonists. And then I'll have them go into something like a weighted forward lunge or maybe just even like a split squat where they're pushing that front knee forward to again, augment that knee um, absorbing that force, but also that hip going into internal rotation as that torso comes over it. So I'll either use it as a warm-up or I'll use it aside, as a superset with that, like my main movement, so that the body starts to understand, okay, so this is what it feels like unloaded, but with a little bit of external force pulling us in either a horizontal vector or like a slight vertical vector, as opposed to just giving them dead weight. Because if you have a dumbbell or a bar on your back, that weight is always going to be getting pulled down by gravity. So the vector is always going to be vertical, whether the body is moving forward or backward. 
there might be a slight horizontal force to it, but the thing about bands is they're pretty lightweight. So there's not a lot of gravity acting on them as opposed to the elasticity and the accommodating resistance. And so if you have a band pulling somebody forward, you are going to augment more of that horizontal force as opposed to just dumbbell and weight force that's just basically gravity. Cool. Did, did you use these kind of stuff on your NBA player? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and again, it's very case dependent. So some players are good at force absorption, but they need help in terms of power production. Some players are the other way where they can produce a lot of, a lot of power, but they can't absorb it. So it really is context dependent. And that's what helps when you can get players either one-on-one or two-on-one and you can kind of group them up into who's very powerful, who, who needs more eccentric training and force absorption training. Um, but yes, I definitely use these concepts with my G League and, and NBA players. Great. That's cool. I think that they're going to love it, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and a big thing is, is explaining to them why you're doing something, right? So being able to show them, hey, I'm putting this band around you, pulling you into this forward lunge because of, think of like a step back, right? You're driving through the lane, but then you want to stop on it. So you're having all your force bringing you forward, but you need to be able to stop. This band is basically your force that you're producing without you having to run into this movement. And so when you give them context of the movement and you can help create buy-in and why you're doing certain movements and lifting certain ways, then it helps players really understand why, you know, just like the why behind your training. And it's not just another movement that they need to finish in order to get the workout done. So really showing them how it applies to their sport. And it's how I actually came up with my name, translational training. But what we do in the weight room should translate onto the court, right? And sure. that's not just basketball. If you like rock climbing, like you, your training should somewhat translate to your rock climbing. If you play field hockey, like any sport, it doesn't have to be extremely sport specific, but something like a forward lunge with a band pulling you into it can be used for many sports, right? There's a lot yeah. of deceleration aspect to it but when you can give that to the athlete and explain to them and this is where sports knowledge comes into play as well you have to understand the sport so i utilize it as like a step back but let's say you're a db in football and you run up to rake on the ball but you need to stop and then backpedal you could also utilize the same movement right so this is where the blend of your own sports knowledge of the sport you're training and being able to communicate that to the athlete as to why you're doing certain movements. Cool, cool. That was like all for the for force absorption and propulsion. Yeah. Next thing I want to talk about is like sleep. How how does sleep gonna affect like performance? Sleep affects performance uh, a massive amount. I actually learned most of this. Um, through Dr. Mita Singh at the NBSCA, I believe it was 2020. Um, so she inspired that, that little IGTV that I made. But not only does it affect, you know, injuries and um, like power production or performance, but she was able to decipher specific aspects of basketball that lack of sleep can negatively impact, such as free throw percentage, points per game, field goal percentage, rebounds per game, assists per game. So it's, it's not just about getting eight hours of sleep or nine hours of sleep if you're an elite athlete, but it's also how are you getting ready to go to bed, you know, and 
we can all improve in these situations, but things like not looking at your phone an hour before you bed, not having a TV in your room, having your room set to a temperature that allows you to go to bed earlier, doing things such as like reading before you go to bed. But um, it, it it's not necessarily just sleep, but like sleep hygiene, right? And so I think a lot of people understand that sleep negatively impacts your performance or lack of sleep, but actually seeing objective measures in basketball, I think hits a little bit closer to home. And so that is what I thought was really important from her presentation, and which is why I wanted to, to give her a shout out and show my, my basketball players why I think that it's all. Cool. So is there like, is there like, usually you're going to like, do you talk to your athletes how, how exactly how many times they're going to sleep and you talk through these with your athletes? We try throughout the season to do it. It's extremely difficult because we're not going to parent them. They are adults and they can make their own choices. But I think it's important to give them the tools that they need to understand why sleep is important. Because I'm sure they've been hearing it a lot. But when you can say, hey, look at statistics. Like, do you want to have a worse field goal percentage? Do you want to have less points per game? Especially for athletes in the G League. Like, your ultimate goal is to get to the NBA. So you should be doing everything possible to keep your mind and your body right so that you can perform at a high level and possibly get a 10-day contract or even a two-way or even get signed to a full NBA contract. And things that are as little as not playing video games until 12 or 2 a.m. or getting off social media at a certain time, I think are extremely beneficial and what I like to call low-hanging fruit. It's something that doesn't take a lot of effort, but it does take diligence and it does take um, a lot of self-control. And so things like that, with sleep specifically, you can only do so much with your athletes. All you can do is give them the information and the tools that they need to understand why it's important, but I'm not physically going to do like room checks on guys on the road and say, Hey, are you asleep? You know? Cool. <laughs> so, uh, besides performance, how does it like, how does sleep like help us recover? Yeah. Like, I mean, training or like, like games. So, I mean, again, yeah, like a big one is just recovery in general. Your body adapts while you're sleeping. There's certain uh, supplements you can take to sleep, but also certain supplements and things that you can do before you go to bed that can help you recover. So just taking like casein protein because it has a slower release. So that helps your, your muscles build while you sleep. And so it comes from an aspect of like you can just say it decreases performance or it helps you recover. Um, there are so many physiological aspects that it affects. It's, it's hard to list them all off. Um, one is just like your mental clarity, your ability to process information. And so a lot of people think that they can just drink caffeine if they feel tired. But in the words of Dr. Mita Singh, if you drink caffeine while you're feeling tired, it just helps you make bad decisions quicker. So it's not necessarily that you're making good decisions, but you are thinking a little bit quicker, but you're still making those poor decisions. And in terms of recovery, it's well documented in research that you need certain hours of sleep to recover from, you know, muscle damage and things like that. And so 
when you don't get that sleep and your brain is still being stimulated, there are certain neurotransmitters and hormones that can't be released in your body because you're not in that rest and reset mode, especially with video games, you're constantly in a sympathetic state. So your body is in that fight or flight mode. And so you need to sleep to get back to your parasympathetic nervous system in order for resting rest, right to help you process all the nutrition, all the other things that you've taken throughout the day that really help your body get back to tip top shape in order to perform at a high level. Yeah. So do you do you, for like recovery, do you use like breathing to help your athletes recover or like meditation, that kind of stuff? Um, we, we do encourage meditation. We do do yoga on the road. Sometimes we have certain supplements such as like tart cherry juice, things that are high in antioxidants just to help uh, neutralize free radicals in the body. Things that are very good in terms of recovery, like juices, beet juice, uh, things like that. But we don't necessarily implement that on a daily basis or even a weekly basis. We tend to use it. Let's say we're on like a long road trip or we, you know, we're gone for a week or something like at the showcase. There are certain times where a lift isn't going to be beneficial because these guys have been traveling and playing a lot of games. So maybe one day we'll focus on meditation and a quick like flexibility yoga session, you know. And so things like that, I think, can go a long way in terms of maybe we don't need to work out, right? Maybe their body is already in a state of trying to recover, but they can't necessarily get back to baseline. So why don't we, like, throw out the workout? We could do something later in the week, but let's make sure that these guys are recovered for our game. So let's keep the main thing the main thing, which is winning basketball games. Yeah. So – Last thing, and I'm going to let you go. Okay, last question. Yeah, no worries, man. So, same thing. It's the post on your Instagram, and I really love it. It's about, like, periodization versus programming. Yeah. What's the difference between periodization and, like, programming? So, periodization is what basically happens when you try to periodize adaptations throughout the course of an extended period of time, whether that be six months, eight months, 10 months, or a year. General linear periodization takes course over a year where you have an endurance phase. Uh, why am I blanking on this right now? A hypertrophy phase, a strength phase, and then a power phase, each of which are supposed to be able to potentiate the other. But that is what's considered more single block training, where you're going to go through an endurance phase to make sure that you have the muscular capacity to train at a hypertrophy phase. In a hypertrophy phase, you want to increase muscle cross-sectional area or make the muscle larger because theoretically, if you have a larger muscle, you can produce more force via cross-linking. And so with more force production, now comes strength training. So since we have bigger muscles, let's try to strength train and actually produce more force or lift weights that are heavier. So now that we can produce more force, let's move into a power phase, which is okay, now that we can produce force, let's do it fast. And so that's general single block linear periodization. There's another form of periodization, which is called double block or almost like conjugate or potentiation training. And so let's say you're nearing the end of your endurance phase, but in the last couple of weeks, you're going to blend endurance and hypertrophy training. So that way you're working on two aspects of training at once. One muscular endurance, one is muscle hypertrophy. And that the same would go for hypertrophy into strength and strength into power. 
So now, instead of working on one adaptation at once, we're actually trying to work on two adaptations at once. And this doesn't have to go for strength and hypertrophy, hypertrophy, or endurance and hypertrophy, hypertrophy and strength, strength and power. You know, this could be speed and speed and agility, or jumping and jumping and sprinting, you know. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. So what comes with that, and notice I didn't mention any exercises. How you periodize and how you create those adaptations is one, the load that you place on the athlete, but two, the exercise. So when it comes to programming, that is what exercises and how are we necessarily going to load it throughout time. And so this comes to things such as, are we going to progress from a split squat to a rear foot elevated split squat? Are we going to go from a split squat to a forward lunge? Are we going to go from a forward lunge to a side lunge and change planes? And so with programming, that becomes more of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So what are the exercises that you're going to do and perform to create and achieve these adaptations that you have set out in your periodization? So I would say that periodization is more of the global outlook as opposed to programming, which is your local outlook on a daily, weekly, monthly basis of how are we going to get these adaptations and how are we going to make sure that we are getting the adaptations that we want so uh do do so can i like understand in this way like periodization is more like uh topics and programming is more like the detail right uh, yeah, yeah, you could say that. I, if I could choose one word for each, periodization, I would say adaptation, and programming, I would say exercises. Oh, or cool, cool. Yeah. Love it, cool. So, is there, is there like anything... Because I know it, it's your first season and it's 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 fun, right? It's it's a blast. I mean, just being on the sidelines, being around elite athletes all the time, it it really brings out the best in you, and it makes you want to be the best version of yourself, so that you can really help these guys get to where they want to go. Which is why we do it, right? You you're in this industry to help people, not to not to help yourself or, or to gain fame or to gain cloud or anything, but you really want to enact change on your athletes and, and help them achieve their goals. So if there's like one thing you think you, you do differently, or it's like uh, anything you want to talk to the young coaches, if they have the dream to be like training pro athletes or elite athletes, what would you talk, what would you say to them? Okay, um, so I'll say two things. One is just be a good person, right? Like nobody knows, like you never know the type of day that somebody's having. Everybody wants to get to these positions. They're very coveted positions. There's a finite amount, right? I'm not saying that anybody can be a personal trainer or anybody can be a coach at the high school level, but getting to the professional level, especially the NBA, is very difficult. And so... Being somebody who can talk to people, being somebody who wants to help other people out. You're not in it to tear other people down, to, to make yourself seem better. You're not in it to try to make money. 
you're not in it to try to get fame or wear the clothes or sit on like sit courtside. Like you have to be in it for the right thing, which is to help other people out. And so my motto with my whole profession um, and my on Instagram is pay it forward. I know there's a lot of people that want to get to where I'm at and it's really difficult. And if you don't have a mentor or somebody that can help you network and get in touch with the right people, then it can be extremely difficult. And so I want to try to help those people understand these more complex topics if they don't have the education, but also be a resource that people can reach out to and ask questions to, or if they need a reference, you know, if I get to know you and I really like you, then I have no problem, you know, vouching for you. Um, and then my second one is kind of piggybacking on that is just develop relationships. The first thing I do when I meet new athletes is, you know, who are you? I, I know you play basketball, but, but what's your identity? What do you like to do outside of here? Like, what are other things that we can connect on? So I'm not just coming in here and telling you what to do and telling you the exercises I want you to do. So I believe developing relationships with these players and really being able to talk to them on a personal level and not just a coach athlete level, it really creates buy-in. And so when you have buy-in, you have guys that really want to put the work in and they really want to do it for you because they understand that you're here for them and you're not just here to use them to get to where you want to go as opposed to the other way around. You want to be the resource that they use to get them to where they want to go. And so I think that is what's skewed a lot. Um, people always say, oh, I've trained this guy, I've trained this guy, I've trained that guy, um, which is great, you know? And, and, and sometimes you, you have to do that. But also, if somebody went and asked that athlete, hey, would you recommend this guy for our opening position? It, if he has nothing to say about you besides, oh, yeah, he was a good trainer, then you're probably not going to get an interview, right? But if he's like, oh, you know, he came to, to my family's house or, like, when I was feeling down, we didn't work out, and he just asked me how my day is going, if there's anything else I can do, you know? Like, really connecting with people on a personal level and not just a coach-athlete relationship. And don't get me wrong, there are times where that has to happen, but that comes through buy-in and knowing them as a person. And so when there are those days where they want to kind of just BS and not do the work, that's when you can say, hey, like, we've done this all year, right? I mean, I, I'm going to need you to step up and really put in the effort today because this is just one of those days that we got to grind and get through. And if they trust you and they know you on a personal level, then they'll be willing to do that. And so I think those are the two biggest things is, is one, pay it forward because you don't know who needs the help. You don't know who needs the education or, or who needs the – the positive energy and the words to, to just keep pushing. And then two is just develop relationships with your athletes beyond training them. Be, be a friend to them, you know, be someone they can talk to someone they want to FaceTime. Right. So the, the head of my APC program, Ramsey Nijem said, one of the main tests with your athletes is if you FaceTime them right now, what they pick up. Right. And so be one of those people that an athlete wants to talk to if you FaceTime. And granted, there's stuff going on. Maybe there'll be a practice. Maybe, you know, they might not be able to pick, pick up your call right then, but they'll probably call you back, right? And so I think that is the biggest thing. And it goes with the old adage of athletes don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Appreciate it, man. Really yeah, of course. Uh, for having me on, I... I I appreciate you reaching out and talking to you. No, I love the content you've posted on Instagram. And it was like, man, I got to talk to this guy. 
<laughs> Thanks, man. That means a lot. It's honestly why I do it. So, uh, if there's like coaches are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you? And where can they find the topics we talked about today? So they can reach out to me on my Instagram, which is at translational underscore training. Um, I might not get back to you immediately. Uh, again, it's, it, it's a busy schedule here, but, but trust me that I, that I will try to get back to you. Um, I, I have no issue getting on a phone call or getting, you know, on a FaceTime live or anything like that to, to really talk and, and try to understand what, what you need help with. Um, and then, sorry, what, what was the other question? Oh, the, the content. Uh, so I learn a lot of my stuff through research, um, like PubMed, uh, through grad school, through the APC program, but just having a constant knowledge uh, or thirst for knowledge in terms of, hey, if I want to know about ACL construction after rehab, you know, like I'm going to go look up a study and, and learn about it. And it might not just be one. It might be three, five, or even 10 on a certain topic that could be broader than that, like such as strength training. But if you need to understand how to decipher research so you know what is good and what is poor, um, and that just takes time, but there are research papers on how to read research. <laughs> and so it seems paradoxical, but that's a huge aspect of this industry because you be on top of research and what is coming out. But it also doesn't have to just be peer-reviewed research. There's a lot of great information out there that you can read in books, such as The Quadrant System. I'll plug Daniel Bove. I love that. Um, Adam Petway just came out with the Biomechanics Basketball book that is very specific to basketball and involves a lot of research to it. So there's ways to ease your way into just reading research papers. But ultimately, you have to have the knowledge to be able to train these guys. And you have to know what you're doing because you can't again, just take an exercise or a program from somebody that trains athletes and implement it with one of your athletes because they might not tell you right now, they probably aren't level as that athlete. And you need to understand what you need to do with your athlete prior to progressing them to certain movements. Good. Good. Thanks. That's like everything I have for today. Okay. Really awesome. appreciate it. Okay. I, I know, I know there is, like busy so really appreciate it for a time man yes sir of course thanks for reaching out and uh and i'd be happy to to be on again if you ever need me for sure i'm gonna do it again okay <laughs> right. good eric thanks see you yep have a good day you too bye bye